0: Let's turn to the New Testament, and we're going to turn to the Gospel of—not the Gospel—the Letter of John, First John, chapter five. And we're going to read verses one to five and look at these verses. First John. Um, if anyone has a pew Bible, could you let me know what number it is? One two two eight. Thank you, Elizabeth. This is John's first letter, chapter 5, page 1228. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith. who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. OK, um, let's see what children we have here as well. Oh, Ailsa. That's, that's about it. I'll have to get some I'll have some older ones as well. Oh, Fraser. Nice. You popped up from somewhere. Did you have a nice holiday? Good. You've kind of grown. You look all grown up. OK what uh, when someone says the word loser if they called you a loser is that a good thing or a bad thing he'll say bad thing why what does it mean it hurts your feelings yeah yeah my feelings get hurt when people call me loser but do you know what it means when you're playing a game you can win and you can lose yeah now, what's wrong with losing a game? Not everyone can win. You know, if I play you at football, Fraser, you'll always lose, won't you? No? No? Oh, okay. Okay. Do you beat your dad at football? Yeah, you do. Well, that's, that's not very difficult. We need to up your standard a wee bit. But. There's, you, when, when you're playing a game, someone loses, and we say loser. It's, you, you don't always have to win things. You don't go in a huff if you you're playing football or you're playing a game and you lose the game, it's, it's really bad to get kind of upset about that. But when people say loser now, it's, it hurts your feelings, I think, because it's, they're, they're saying, oh, you're nothing, you're nobody. And that really does, does hurt. And sometimes, well, there are some things that matter when we lose. It doesn't matter if we lose a game, but there's a way of... Uh, how we live our lives. There's a way that we can live our lives where our lives are a victory, and there's a way that we can live our lives that they're a loss, and that's what we're going to look at uh, just now. And maybe, guys, I might come back to you and ask you a couple other questions as we go through, so don't go to sleep just quite yet, and I'll do the same for Hugh as well. So um, it is, though, isn't it, that the kind of you loser is about one of the worst insults you can give to anyone. I'm not still quite sure that I understand it, but I do, I, I, I'm, I'm with Ails on this one. I do understand that when people say to me, ah, loser, that it's quite con- contemptuous. I think that in our culture, people talk about living in victory. That's what we're going to look at. And the kind of non-Christian version of it is this, that you can be, you know, be all you can be. You are special. Release the inner you. You um, There's loads and loads of self-help books, especially for some bizarre reason. If you go to airports uh, and railway stations, you'll find whole sections that are devoted to traveling business people to read books that tell them how they can release the inner you and how they can be victorious, um, release the superwoman within. You can have victory in health and victory in wealth and victory in personal fulfillment. Now, there's a Christian version of this. You get it on Christian television where you get a lot of preachers who come on and they tell you how to live the victorious life. Here is my latest DVD set. It'll only cost you $25, and it will tell you how to live the victorious life and be wealthy. Basically, go on television telling people how to be wealthy and selling things at $25, telling them how to be wealthy. You get a lot of that victorious living. And it's no—apart from the Christian veneer, it's not really any different from what you get in the airport bookshops the idea of victory in health, victory in wealth, victory in personal fulfillment. So when we're talking here about living in victory, if that's in the back of your mind that you're going to get a a talk about how to be healthy and how to be wealthy and how to have a victorious life in that way, um, sorry, that's not what this is. That's not what this says. Let me explain it this way. You can only live if you are Alive. We have uh, lots of announcements of babies and new babies coming in. Uh, You can't have life unless you are born. And in terms of spiritual life, you can't have spiritual life unless you are born again, unless you have the new birth. And that particular thing, the new birth and being born again, is so misunderstood. But what John is saying, what John says throughout the the whole letter, and we could go through it, and you could uh, see how he links the signs of being born again. There's three signs that he gives, and he keeps repeating them in different ways, and he does the same here in these verses. When you have a new baby, you look for signs of life. Um, Actually, let me ask the children again. Fraser, Elsa, how do you know, Fiona, how do you know if a baby's alive? What would you expect a baby to do? Cry and breathe. Great, that's two. I've got three things. Cry and breathe and move as well, a little bit. You know that the baby is alive. John uses three signs here of a Christian. How do you know someone's really a Christian? There are signs of life. Obedience, love, and faith. There are always put together. And he gives, he goes through this, and he gives, I think, four things tied in with that to show whether we have spiritual life and whether we have victory in this life. And the first is very simple. It is believing Jesus. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. How do you know if you are born again? Is it because of an experience you have? Is it because you went forward at a rally? Is it because you signed a card? Is it because you put your hand up? Is it because you prayed really, really, really hard? No, you know because of this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, that's insisted on throughout this letter. Now what's interesting here is that faith is centered on the object of faith, that is who Jesus is, rather than on what we experience, the experience of believing. So if you said, I know I'm born again because I experienced this, you would actually be wrong. Because what you'd be doing is you'd be relying on your experience, and maybe in a year's time you'd come and say, How do I know that experience is real? And so you find a lot of people who say, Well, I was a Christian, I went through that born again experience, and then it just all left me. The feeling left me, it's all gone. But here, we're told, no, actually, that's not how you know. How you know is what you believe about Jesus Christ. We are, most of us are what, in philosophical terms, is called existentialists. I feel this, or this view makes sense for me, and therefore it pleases me. We believe, but it doesn't really matter what we believe. So, a a classic thing is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, And you'll see this, people have this on plaques on their wall and so on. He said, to travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. Rubbish. Absolute rubbish. But people put on the wall and go, wow, that's profound. No, it's not. It's nonsense. If I want to go from here to Edinburgh and I get on the train, what's better, for me to hope that I'm on the right train or to actually get to Edinburgh? If I want to go to Edinburgh, it's better to get to Edinburgh. So when people go around saying, to travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive, it's just meaningless waffle. It doesn't mean a a thing, and itself is, is clearly nonsense. Now, that's the same way when people say, oh, I admire your faith. I wish I could have your faith. No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't admire faith. When we talk about people of faith, that's not the issue. What is our faith in Calvin says, the only true way of believing is when we direct our minds to Him. But what does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? It is to believe the Old and New Testaments. It is to believe in the creation and fall of man and the promise of a Savior. It is to believe that even under the Old Testament law, the full restoration of all things, the full righteousness and happiness were promised, and that this would only come through Christ. The Christ was someone who was promised to God's people in the Old Testament to save them from their sin and misery. And all that's being said here is that if you are born of God, you believe that Jesus is that Savior. If you believe that Jesus is that Savior, then you are born of God. The believer who so trusts, is born of God. I tell you, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, in actual fact, that kind of faith, that kind of trust in Jesus, that trust where you say, I know I can't rely on myself, I know I can't rely on religion, I know I can't rely on my experience, I know actually that I can do nothing. When you reach that point and you're saying, I can only trust Jesus, a Jesus whom I've never met, a Jesus who I know so little about, but I trust that He is the Savior, it's not natural to have that kind of faith. It is something that is supernatural. It's not blind, but it is supernatural. Faith, says Calvin, is far above the reach of the human mind, so that we must be drawn to Christ by our Heavenly Father for not any of us can ascend to him by our own strength. We can't come to Christ by our own strength any more than we can say, oh, I just wish I was an inch taller. I wish I was an inch taller. I wish I was an inch taller. You can't, by wishing that, you can't, you don't get it. And it's the same way. We can't just say, oh, well, I, I, I wish I believed in Jesus. I wish I believed in Jesus. The, to actually come to that point of belief and faith in Jesus Christ. It requires something radical, something drastic to happen to us. And that something radical and that something drastic is the new birth. Now, I think um, that is actually quite astonishing. If you go into, back into John's gospel, remember it's the same John who's writing this, John chapter 3, and you'll see that the story of Nicodemus will not Read the whole story, but in chapter three and verse three, Jesus declared, "I tell you the truth. Unless I uh, tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old?" Nicodemus asked. "Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born." Jesus answered, "I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again." The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, you see, it's very important, and a lot of Christians don't grasp this and don't get this. It's very important to understand that what Jesus taught there and what John is teaching in, in 1 John is not have enough faith so that you can be born again. What he's teaching is you must be born again before you can even see the kingdom of God. You can't have faith without being born again. Ephesians 2, Paul says, faith is the gift of God. In other words, when we're taking the gospel to people, we're not saying to people, just summon up all your natural abilities. Go on, you can do it, you can do it, you can believe. No, you can't. The image that's given in Ezekiel, the image that's given by Jesus, the image that's given by the apostles is simply this. You go and you tell people to believe in Jesus knowing that you are telling dead people to come to life. And that's impossible. It's impossible. You're going out to the graveyard and you're saying, get up. When we are telling people to believe in Jesus, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is distinctly uncomfortable for you at two levels. Firstly, because you don't like to be told you're dead. And secondly, because you think, well, if I'm dead and I can't believe, what's the point? But the point is you are commanded, and if you're beginning to think and you're beginning to grasp, then there's that's some evidence of God being at work in your life. When Jesus in John eleven forty three said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out he was doing something that was incredibly stupid at one level, because he was talking to a man who wasn't only just deaf he was dead. He had no capacity. All the, the neuro, neurological stuff in his brain, it wasn't working. He had no ability to hear. He had no ability to respond. But Christ gave that ability. He brought that life. We, we get in despair at our culture. We get in despair at people around us. Maybe you have relatives or friends or, or other people, and you think, how can they possibly believe? You look at other people, and you say, they're very close to believing, or I can see how they could believe, but I can't see how they could. Actually, nobody could believe unless God's Spirit is at work. You can't even see the kingdom of God, never mind accept it, unless the Holy Spirit is working we as christians are utterly helpless when someone says do you think you can convert me are you trying to convert me our answer is uh, no we can't we can't convert anybody it is god who uses yes he uses means he uses us but it is god who works romans 10:17 faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of christ so that's the first thing then uh, we know we are born again because we believe in Jesus. Here's the second thing. Loving Christians. Okay. Praise Elsa Fiona. Who do you look like? Who do you think you look like? Your mom or your dad? Does anyone ever say to you, oh, you just look like your dad? Looking at you, probably not. You know, you know that people say when they get a wee baby, they go, oh, look at that baby. Oh, he just looks so like his mom or looks so like his dad. I never, ever get that, by the way, because to me, babies look like babies. And when they say, oh, look, he's got his father's nose. But when you get older, you see them. Because if, if the two of you, if you three look behind you and you see Andrew there, right? Now, he's, if you put him and his mother together, they're like twins in some ways. You know? That's, he's really pleased with that one. You know? But people say, oh, I know where you came from. Because you look like, and sometimes now, some of us, that's not the case. I don't think any of my children have had the good fortune to inherit their father's genes in terms of his good looks. But that's, that's, that's what we say. You can see that sometimes people look very alike. Some of the students who come here, when their parents come to visit, some, not all, but some you think, oh, I know who you are, even, even if they're not sitting beside their offspring. You know exactly who they are, because they look like them. But there are other ways that we're like our parents as well, because the, our parents pass on their character and their nature. So sometimes you'll, you'll, you'll look at someone, and you, and, or you'll see how someone's behaving, and you'll think, wow, they're the double of their mother, or they're the double of their father. See that temper, just exactly the same, or see that, that worry, or whatever. We, we seem to inherit and or develop characteristics of the parents that we have. When we are born again, the same thing happens in terms of God. We we develop the characteristics of our Father in heaven. And what is that? God is love. Back in 1 John 3 and 1 John 4, we've been told that. In 1 John 3, 13, we've we're told, uh, 1 John three eleven rather, this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God dwell in him? When you are born again, it's not just that you've become religious, you've got a wee turnover, or you've, you've, you know, you've decided to go all holy for a while. What it is is, There's a radical new nature come within you, and that gives you new desires, a new frame of mind, a drawing towards God. And what that means is that you will naturally, because of the supernatural work of God, you will naturally love other Christians. In fact, if you say you're a Christian, you look at every other Christian, you go, I can't stand them. Then it's almost certain you're not a Christian. How can the love of God be in you? It's not saying that we, we like everybody else. I love everybody in my family. It doesn't mean to say I like them all the time. I don't think they like me all the time either. It's the same in the Christian family. But there's a, a real genuine and deep love there. If we love the, 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 the language that's used here in this verse about loving God, everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. The, the English translation doesn't carry it, because Paul uses two words that are very much the same, and the nearest you can get in English is to say, if you love the begetter, you'll love the begotten. In other words, if you love the father, you'll love the child. Now, it's a very simple test that you can do, especially at communion, uh, but also other times. You look around you in the church, and you look at people who are in God's image, made in God's image, but also who have been they're Christians, they have been reborn, remade, and they have the nature of God within them. And God says, if you love me, you love them. There's no split division in that one. It's interesting, John here says, he usually says, we know we love God because we love people. How do you know you love God? Because you love people. But it's a little different here. Here he's saying, we love people because we love God. Because you love, profess faith in Jesus Christ, because you love God the Father, then you love other Christians. And it's not just Christians, by the way. Calvin, commenting on this passage, again says, we must observe that the apostle does not so speak of the faithful only, and bypass those who are without, as though the former alone are to be loved, and no care and no account to be had for the latter. But he teaches us, as it were, by this first exercise to love all without exception, when he bids us to make a beginning with the godly. As God is love, then our nature changes to be love. It's not enough for us to say, oh, it's great that God is love and I worship that God. We're saying we have become Christians, so we have got that nature as well. I would be really, really embarrassed to put up a sign or wear a t-shirt or a badge that said, David is love. Um, And if I had it, you'd think, what a weirdo, and also what a hypocrite but that's what being, we're being told. We have to reflect God in that respect. We are uh, to love Christians. How do you know you're a Christian? You know you're a Christian because you believe in Jesus, and that's not natural. You know you're a Christian because you love other Christians, and that's not natural. Here's the third thing. Because you obey God. Now, let me say to the, the children, we, we did this last week as well. We talked about if we love our, our dad or our mum, then uh, we would do what they say. I think uh, all of us here have a bit of a problem, because here's how this goes. If you're just vaguely listening to this, and in the back of your mind, you're hearing, love, 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 God is love, we are to love, and so on then you're probably just waiting for me to burst into the Beatles, all you need is love and peace, love and understanding and everything else. You think it sounds good, you think it sounds sweet, and you carry on sleeping or daydreaming. But if you take time to reflect upon this and think about it, what you hear here is something that in that song about love, there is a discordant note. All you need is love and so you will obey that just clashes. That's people walking around going, oh, you need his love. Isn't it wonderful? And the dialects going, you will obey. You will obey. It, it's, it's, it seems just a, to clash. It sounds so unmodern, so fascistic, so loving, so unloving. But here is what's happening. Real love is definable. It has content. It has commands. Real love is shown by a concern to do God's will. Note the order. John is not a legalist, but he knows that love acts. The natural expression of love is in doing the things that please the beloved. And what better expression is there of that than doing His commands? How else do we know what pleases God? Oh, I'm going to love God, I'm going to do what pleases God, and then I'm going to tell Him what should please Him. Some of us in our relationships are like that. We say we love someone, and we say we're going to do this, and they will like it, and they'd better like it. But if we really love someone, and we know what pleases them, then we do it at times even though we ourselves may not understand or may not particularly like it. But you see, John says an amazing thing here. He says in verse 3, his commands are not burdensome. Reflecting Jesus, Matthew eleven thirty, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that true? Because is it not the case that the commands of God, when you read them, they look as, it's as though you're cycling and there's a really steep hill and it seems to be going on forever and ever and ever, and you think, how am I going to get up there? But as you come to that hill, what happens is you realize, first of all, it's not as steep as you thought. And secondly, you get up there by just basically doing one pedal at a time. And I think that here it's even better than that, that it's as though, sticking with the analogy of the bike, it's as though you're pedaling and you cheat. You've got one of these engines that just helps boost you as you go up that hill. This, I think, is the same with the commands of God. They are much lighter than we think. Not that it's easy to obey God. He's just saying, what John is saying is it's not a burden. It's not an irksome burden. It's difficult, but it's a delight. If you express love for God, but you don't keep his commands, you know what you're doing? You know what you're saying? You're saying, this is a bore. This is a chore. This is a heavy load. And what does that say about our attitude to God? I love what David Jackman says in speaking about this, he says, in fact, God's commands are no more burdensome than wings are to a bird. They are the means by which we live in freedom and fulfillment. Other commands cripple and destroy. The commands of Christ liberate. And I think, again, that's another great key in keeping God's commands. If you think that by keeping God's commands, you save yourself, or if you think that fear of punishment is sufficient motivation, you haven't got it you only keep the law through love. Let me explain it this way. We think we are used to the concept of law as negative. It has to do with punishment. I'm not going to park there because I'll get fined. You see the traffic warden. You know that they're out and about, so you don't park there. Or I'm not going to steal because if I get caught, I'll go to jail. But what if you knew you wouldn't get fined? What if you knew the traffic wardens were on strike? What if you knew that nobody was going to catch you stealing? If you took that, nobody was going to get you. Would you be more likely to do it? Yes, you would. We would all be more likely to do it. What about those? Maybe there are people, though, who don't park in the disabled spot because they actually think, not I'm going to get punished, but they think, actually, this is for disabled people, and I can walk the extra, you know, 50 meters in the Tesco's. I don't need to park in the disabled spot. That's for disabled people. Maybe, what if your motivation wasn't just, I'm going to get clamped, but it's a more positive motivation about caring for other people? What about not stealing because you're thinking, well, you know, if I steal, then I'm taking stuff off the shopkeeper, or I'm taking it from somebody, and that's really going to hurt them. What if that was your motivation instead of saying, well, I'm not going to get away with it? I think it's the same with God's people. That there are people who say, Well, I've got to keep God's commands because otherwise I'm in trouble. But what if you kept God's commands because you love God? What if you kept God's commands because they were a delight? What if you kept God's commands because you knew that they were for the good of other people as well as yourself? That's why John says, This is love for God, to obey his commands. You love him, you obey his commands. Fourth thing, last thing, we overcome the world. We know that we are Christians because. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. We know that we are Christians because we love our fellow Christians. We know that we are Christians because we want to obey the commands of God. And we know that we are Christians because we overcome the world. This is the victory. Now, this is where this all ties in together and where it's really important. What is victory? If I Use that language and said, are you living in, victor- in victory? Do you live the victorious Christian life? What would you say? You would think, well, it means I never sin. It means I'm always getting on well. It means I'm constantly praying and so on. That is not what it means to live the victorious Christian life. We are in a constant battle, and the more we are aware of the reality and the effects of sin, both within ourselves and others, the more overwhelming it appears. The world. We've overcome the world, it says. But what's the world? The world here means all that's opposed to the Spirit of God, the lusts of the flesh, human sin, greed, the devil, and all his forces. What God does here is He encourages us to keep fighting because He promises us victory because He knows we're so prone to give up. Now, how do you get that victory? Note the emphasis. It's not on our power, It's not on our ability. It's not God saying, I'm going to give you power. It's not God saying, I'm going to give you this ability. It's not our circumstances. It's not God saying, I'm going to give you prosperity. It's on our faith. This is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. It's not blind faith, but it's the one we have faith in. Who is he that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's not back to having a faith but having the faith, faith in Jesus Christ. We recognize his person, who he is, what he has done. Now, you see how important this is. If you say it's only faith that matters, um, when our queen eventually goes and is replaced by King Charles, King Charles says he wants to be the King of defender of faith, not of the faith. Well, if I wasn't a Republican before, the minute that happens, I will be a Republican because it's meaningless again. It's meaningless rub. Defender of faith. What does that mean? Defender of faith, or people of all faiths, and people of none, and people... No, it's, it's not defender of the faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. If you say it's only faith that matters, or people of faith, then you're changing what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say it's only faith that matters. It says it matters who we have faith in. And that comes back to Jesus, believing that he is the Son of God. And that's where the victory comes in. And you may find this difficult to, to believe, actually, and, and to accept it. But I think it's just wonderful. Because if I try and convince myself, I have the power within, I, have, I can overcome this, I can do this, I can do this, you know, I believe I can fly, I believe I can touch the sky and so on, I know within myself it's nonsense. I know It's nonsense. But if I read what the Bible says, it says I'm weak. It says I can't do it. I know that. But then it tells me to have trust in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what He has done. And that changes everything. Because Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, as it says in verse 5, believing that He is the Christ in verse 1, then by believing that, you have victory. For by faith, He means a real apprehension of Christ, or an effectual laying hold of Him by which we apply His power to ourselves. It's grasping hold of Christ. It's believing in Christ. It's trusting Christ, not wishful thinking. That comes from spiritual birth, the new birth, and then persistent, continual faith in Jesus, which enables us to live lives of victory. We have the victory in our evangelism. Uh, I quote there John Wesley's, Charles Wesley's hymn, rather, he speaks, and listening to His voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. We want God to speak into our culture. We want God to, pro- to, to proclaim. It's not about the church. It's doing it. We do it on, on Christ's behalf, if you like. But we need the voice of God. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. And when we realize that, it's by that that we overcome the world the victory is Christ, and so we rely on Jesus Christ. So those four things, let me just apply those, and then we're going to pray. Um, You're a Christian. How do you know? You know because you believe in Jesus. You know because you love God's people. You know because you obey God's commands. You know because you overcome the world. What if you are not a Christian? then become one. Find out who Jesus is. You can't become a Christian by doing lots of different things. It's just simply by entrusting yourself wholeheartedly and absolutely to this wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's as simple and as powerful as that. But what if you're a Christian who's struggling? Maybe sometimes you're not even sure. (sighs) Get back to the basics. We get very complicated in so many different things. Get back to the basics. Jesus Christ does not care two hoots about all the wonderful things that you say you do in his name. He cares about whether you know him, about whether you trust him, about whether you rely on him. That's it. That's all I've got. That's all that you have. If you know that and you trust absolutely in Jesus Christ, then you are a Christian and you don't have a victory that's further down the road. You are already living in victory. It's yours. It's there. You are on the Lord's side and he's not going to lose. You cannot lose.